To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. You may have heard the advice before that if something can be done in 60 seconds or less, get it done right away rather than postponing it. Would you consider leaving me an iTunes rating, which would take you 60 seconds or less? It would make a difference. And I leave directions in the body description of this episode. Have you ever had anger that didn't seem to go away? With time, you exercise to distract, you talk to friends about it, it's just not going away. What do you do? Here's another question What if your anger is about unforgiveness towards a spouse that has betrayed you, towards a lover that has cheated on you? What do you do? What are the five steps to take if you've been the one who's been unfaithful? How do you get over divorce anger? And how can you leave a legacy of empathy and love to your children, to the following generations, rather than toxic anger, which does happen? These are some of the things that my guest and I talk about in this episode. And it had such an impact on me. He had such profound insights. It really affected me, and I'm delighted to share it with you. He lives a thousand miles away in Wisconsin, which is also where my beloved Aunt Christina lives, retired teacher extraordinaire. And we had some technical difficulties as we recorded this, so the sound quality isn't going to be what you're used to, and I'm going to ask you to forgive us for the sound quality It's worth it, though. It's a great conversation. This is the second episode that I've recorded on this topic of forgiveness. The first one was episode number 11, and I included the perspectives of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and I had brought in the perspective of psychology. This time, it's all about the perspective of psychology because my guest is the pioneer on studies on this topic. So without further delay, forgiveness. My guest today, Dr. Robert Enright, is a professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And the pioneer of the scientific study of forgiveness, I am so excited to have you today. Thank you for coming. Um, I want to I want to share with guests that you are the author of Forgiveness Therapy, The Forgiving Life, and a recent book called Eight Keys to Forgiveness. Um, and you are the founder of the International Forgiveness Institute. You've been featured in Time Magazine and ABC's 2020, and you've developed forgiveness education programs in 12 countries across the globe. 
And that's not even mentioning the many awards for your work in bringing peace and decreasing conflict. I am truly grateful for your work, and thanks for being here again. You're quite welcome. I'm honored to be with you, Alexandra. <laughs> so, Dr. Enright, when it comes to each of our own struggles with forgiveness, it's very personal. So, I'd like to present you a story of some patients of mine in my practice, and they currently, right now, have unresolved pain and unforgiveness, and it's almost tearing their marriage apart. The story is similar to a lot of stories. Ten years ago, the husband had an affair with a woman at work. It was mostly an emotional affair. He said he loved his wife, and it didn't mean anything, and he still wonders how it happened. It's one of those situations. A lot of people feel that way, like, I don't know how it happened. I never wanted this. I fell into this. Well, he's one of them. And while his wife didn't know for a long time, she suspected it, and she finally found out for sure it did happen about a year ago. What happened next is that out of her pain, she started to have not one but several affairs. One of them was long distance over the internet. And she announced recently that she wants to leave the marriage. She just can't forgive him. And she also can't forgive herself. So that was actually, this couple was my inspiration for wanting to do this topic. And I'd like to know your initial reactions or, or your reactions to this story and this couple. I think this is not unusual in the least. The tragedy of this story is that I would bet neither husband nor wife have thought very deeply about what forgiveness is. Now they're in a very unjust situation where they've both been unfair to each other, and she's even using the word forgiveness about forgiving him, forgiving herself. But if they've never thought about this topic of forgiveness in any depth, I'm also betting they misunderstand what it is. If you sat down with them, Alexandra, and asked them, what is your definition of forgiveness? They likely would say something like this. Oh, we'll just move on. Or we'll let it go. Or we'll put it in the rear view mirror and just get on with our life. Which is absolutely not what forgiveness is, but what most people think forgiveness is. Forgiveness mm -hmm. is actually what we would call a moral virtue, like justice and patience and kindness, that starts within the human mind and heart as goodness, that flows out to others for their good. And forgiveness, in its most simple definition, and you'll see how hard forgiveness is by this definition, it's deliberately being good to those who are not good to you, without excusing without forgetting, there may or may not be reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. And forgiveness and justice grow up together. So 
so forgiveness is definitely not just moving on and putting it behind you, which people would say, I can't do that, and I don't blame them because the hurt is too deep to just move on from it. You have to do hard work over time to genuinely forgive. Yes. I don't think it would be easy. No, it could take months or even years, but little progress makes a big difference. If they could explore deeply what forgiveness is, yes. and we can go through the process here, if you wish, about how we bring people to a forgiving response, if they would go through the process of forgiveness, I think their marriage could be put back together if they want to do that. See, forgiveness is never a moral virtue where people should be forced into it. This is not like justice, which can be demanded in society. We have laws about being fair, like stopping at a red light when you're driving your car. But forgiveness is always a choice. And I have a book by that title with the American Psychological Association, Forgiveness is a Choice. And I deliberately entitled it that way so that people don't feel pressured into forgiveness, but instead are drawn to it themselves. I noticed that in your phases of forgiveness, the first phase is the uncovering. Right. And that is when they have to express the anger? Yes. See, what we find in our research is when there's an injustice, invariably there are certain effects of that injustice that tumble down onto a person, such as getting angry and sometimes very angry. They get tired. They ruminate and think over and over about what happened. They compare themselves to the other and maybe start feeling even worse about themselves. They start becoming pessimistic, oftentimes about life in general, where the husband might say no woman can be trusted, or the wife might say no man can be trusted, and the glass is always half empty. So all of this can start tumbling down on a person as an effect of the injustice. You see, the injustice has a certain, shall we say, shelf life. Injustices happen in time, and then we move forward, and the injustice is now in the past. But the effects of the injustice are very much present, and they can stay with the person literally for the rest of their life. Yes. And if they have excessive anger, you know what happens to that anger when a person dies? It lives on in their children who then grow up with that anger, and mm -hmm. they give it to their own spouses and children. You know what happens to that anger? It goes to the next generation. So anger is like a virus that keeps jumping from host to host and literally can continue to live on for hundreds of years, and I have seen that in war-torn areas of the world. Wow. That is quite something, that analogy about it being like a virus. Yes. And you know what? Viruses don't have cures right now in the medical sciences, but the anger that's deep and toxic that we call resentment has a cure. It actually has a cure, and that cure is forgiveness, and the world has yet to catch on to that, and that to me is extremely unfortunate, because if 
if you had a bottle of antibiotics that could cure a particular bacterial infection that kills people, and they kept ignoring your bottle of pills, you would probably be very frustrated. And that's the way I feel about forgiveness and the cure for resentment. We have a cure called forgiveness for a deadly disease called resentment, and people don't understand that. So, Dr. Enright, I know you have published countless, countless research studies in this area, and yeah. I, what it sounds like is that you're feeling ignored. You're feeling like no one wants to hear it about forgiveness. Well, it's not necessarily that I'm being ignored. It's that forgiveness as a topic has been, shall we say, out there for thousands of years, okay? And you can see it in many of the ancient texts, whether it's Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, uh, just what they call the wisdom literature. It's been out there for thousands of years, as has justice. And yes. justice has been embraced by societies. I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin. We even have an entire school within the university dedicated exclusively to justice. It's called the law school. But forgiveness has never emerged as a major way to cultivate harmony in families, communities, and nations. And I truly don't get it. I don't understand why that is. So my work is only one small drop in the ocean of human thought, and forgiveness is the forgotten stepchild, and that really needs to change. Your work offers very practical ways to forgive. You break down forgiveness into four phases, and... Regarding our original case, you gave four or five things that, do you mind if we go back to the original case? Yes. Okay. So in your book, you gave steps on how to resolve the anger related to infidelity. Yes. And the offending spouse, the one who was unfaithful, was given five steps that they had to do, which I thought were excellent. Okay. And they were this. They were to be totally transparent, to admit fully to all of their indiscretions, to apologize sincerely, to grow in self-knowledge, and then to uncover the major precipitating conflicts that led to it. some of the 
precipitating factors are, including the will, so that it doesn't happen again. So I think that is excellent advice. I agree. Transparency is becoming increasingly difficult for people when it comes to, because there are so many options for um, betraying your loved one. I'm talking about there, there are an increasing amount of emotional affairs now that people have so much more access to more choices through social media, through their phones. Yes, but ultimately, as you're saying with those five steps, there has to be the courageous search for truth. And if there's not, then they're not necessarily going to reconcile deeply. And even if one of them goes through those five steps of seeking forgiveness, that's not sufficient, because the other then has to have a heart and mind cultivated in forgiving, Right. So that as the person reaches out to seek forgiveness, the other is ready to give forgiveness so that the two can at least begin a reconciliation process. And right. reconciliation is not some automatic push-button kind of a thing. Right. Reconciliation is coming together again in mutual trust, which has to be earned in inches rather than gigantic leaps. So that they can show each other that they are faithful. That can take time. Yes, that does take time. You can't just trust again. No. Trust is built up. Trust is earned. Forgiving, you don't have to wait for someone to earn your forgiving. That can be unconditional. A forgiver can go ahead without an apology. And sometimes the forgiving can spark the conscience of the one who behaved badly and induce some healthy guilt in the one who behaved badly. And so forgiving can sometimes spark the seeking of forgiveness, and then together they may be able to find their way back to reconciliation if they're willing to do the hard work of all three, forgiving, seeking forgiveness, and reconciling. So a couple of things you just said sparked some ideas. First of all, you talked about healthy guilt. No one talks about that. No, yeah, guilt is supposed to be bad. But remember, we know since Sigmund Freud over a hundred years ago, where he called it the superego, we have consciences, and consciences are good because they help direct us into when we have behaved badly so that we can correct that. And so he's really talking about guilt. He's not talking about excessive guilt or false guilt where you drop uh, a paper clip and you think you've disturbed the whole family. That would be excessive, unreasonable guilt. But to say, I have made a commitment to fidelity, which I have broken, to feel guilty about that is healthy and good. You talked about how the spouse who was offended can go ahead and forgive without waiting for the, the other one to seek forgiveness. Yes, that's correct. And I think I've seen that throughout your writing, that you don't have to wait for the other one to seek forgiveness. For, forgiving is good for you. And that would apply to whether or not they stay in the marriage. That's exactly right. 
see, a person can forgive and decide that the marriage isn't working and there is no hope because there never was a real marriage to begin with. And if that's the case, if someone says, well, I cannot forgive because I'm leaving the marriage, they are now trapping themselves in a resentment that could eat away at them. And there's been longitudinal research by Judith Wallerstein uh, many years ago where she did a 10-year study post-divorce and she found that even 10 years later, many of the spouses are still fuming with anger. And so you see how it can live on in the heart. And unless you forgive, in all likelihood, that kind of discontent may be with a person until they die. Oh, my. And that is terrible for our health. Exactly. And why would one want to go through the injustice within the marriage, then the divorce, and then carry the effects of that, which is this turbulent unrest we call resentment, why would anyone want to keep that in their heart for one more second? I think that some people are very attached to keeping that. Well, you know, sometimes and people say the same thing to me that they feel energized and empowered and they can seek fairness. But you know, if you live too much with this for too long and too deeply, it comes back to bite you. And people don't understand that. Yes, you can be energized for a while, but resentment is no friend. I can understand what we call self-righteous anger, which is much more toned down and much more short-lived, where you say, you can't treat me that way. I am a person of respect. That's perfectly reasonable. But to let that become buried in the heart and remain there where it comes to visit you at night, in your dreams, in your sleeplessness, in your fatigue during the day, why would you want that to be part of your life? That certainly is not moving on or getting over it in any stretch of the imagination. Right. And in your uncovering phase, which is the first phase of forgiveness that you've talked about, it seems that you want the person to become aware of how they rehearse these things over and over and over again in their minds. Yes, because if it's true that this is happening, they will then realize that they're in a lot more pain than they even realized. And that pain can be a great motivator to now do something about getting rid of that pain. And if they develop a good jogging program or a good book club uh, and that can help ease the pain, fine. Then maybe they don't need to forgive. But oftentimes that's not enough. Right. Because sometimes the jogging program gets the endorphins going and then you get a little tired and you start feeling pretty good about life. But as soon as you recover from the run, there's the resentment looking back at you again. So those can cover over symptoms, but they can't necessarily go deeply into cure. And that's what I'm interested in, the cure for the resentment. Right. And the second phase of forgiveness is the decision phase. Yes, yes the decision phase is where we sit down and ask the person, given all of your pain for what happened here, are you willing to think about forgiveness as an option? 
And if they are, we go through again what the definition is. We say it's a moral virtue like justice is and kindness and love. And you are going to try to be good to the one who wasn't good to you. You won't be excusing. You will not be forgetting. You may or may not reconcile when you forgive. And you will seek justice by asking the person to stop the injustice. Do you want to go ahead? And if the person does, then we tend to give them a homework assignment. And the homework assignment is this. Are you willing right now to make a commitment for the rest of your life to do no harm to the one who hurts you? We're not asking them to embrace the person or to trust them completely or to love them unconditionally. We're talking about refraining from the negative. Are you willing to do no harm by talking in a nasty way about them or talking in a nasty way to them or subverting their happiness deliberately? Are you willing to do no harm? And that can be a very Those are great distinctions. first step in forgiving. Oh, wow. Those are just really terrific distinctions, including not talking badly about the other person. People, right. wow. Because we can drag a person's name through the mud. Suzanne Friedman and I did a study with incest survivors. And one woman who said, I'll never forgive my father, yes. ended up forgiving. And he, he was actually deceased. But she brought her two children to the cemetery, and in, within the tradition of her own religion, she had a tasteful ceremony of respect for the dead, not because of what he did, but in spite of it. And you see, rather than dragging grandpa's name through the mud with the grandchildren, she honored him because there was a lot that he did that was good. He also is a human being. He also is part of the family. He is more than the perpetration of incest, which, of course, should never be ignored and never uh, diminished in any way. Right. But he is more than that. And she was giving that message to her children. You know who it helped? It helped her heart. And she went from being clinically depressed to being yes. non-depressed. It's not that she just moved in depression. It's not that she just improved in depression. The depression left her. And a year later, it was still gone. The depression had, had left. Wow. The, once someone can make that decision like this woman so courageously did, yes. that's not enough, right, Dr. Enright?
well, you're not going to be able to do it in all likelihood. Right. But if we say no, to show you you have control over your thinking, think of a pink elephant in the room. Well, you can do that. And so if we apply that to the forgiveness work, we ask the person to think about the one who hurt them in very different ways that is typical. What's typical is to keep focusing on the hurt and focusing on the failure and building up a story that this person is a rat, so to speak. But forgiveness asks you to take three perspectives on the other person. We call them the personal, global, and cosmic perspectives. Okay. The personal perspective is to look at the other person's own woundedness, own weakness, own confusion, own struggle, including injustices that have been perpetrated onto that person. Not to excuse, not to say, oh, oh, he was under pressure at work and that's why he had an affair. Okay, no big deal. No. It's to see that he is not necessarily as strong as he should have been. He didn't necessarily understand fidelity. Maybe one of his parents was also unfaithful, as an example. Uh, But we look at the particulars of the offending person's life and the stumblings and the wounds and maybe the bitterness and confusion that that person has brought into that relationship. And that can start softening the heart. That's the personal perspective. The global perspective is where you start seeing what we call the inherent or built-in worth of the other person, not because of what they did, but in spite of it. Mm -hmm. All human beings have worth. The philosopher Immanuel Kant, K-A-N-T, he's probably the widely acknowledged philosopher in the West. And he said that all people are worthy of respect. All people are human beings, and we have to acknowledge that and treat one another with that kind of worth. And I think he's right. And so the key is to see the common humanity that you share with the one who offended you. If you both cut, you bleed. If you dare to breathe, you need nutrition. You're both going to die one day. You both have unique DNA, where when either one of you dies, there'll never be anyone like you ever again on the planet. You're both special, unique, and irreplaceable, not because of what was perpetrated, but in spite of it. And then we go to one higher level of abstraction, but only if a person has a worldview beyond the material world. It's called the cosmic perspective. And we tend to use a person's philosophy or religion to tap into a broader view of who this person is. For example, if someone that comes from the Jewish or Christian perspective, they can go to Genesis 1, the first book of the Bible, where it says all people are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, if someone is a believer like that, you ask the question, but only after they've gone through the personal and global perspective, Does this mean that you are a child of God, despite your wounds? And then we ask, does that mean the one who hurt you is a child of God, like you? And that can be jolting for people, because they never thought about it. But if it taps into their faith, then you ask them to think about forgiveness in the context of their faith. Mm -hmm. So when you put all of these together, 
you have a much wider lens than you ever have regarding who the other person is as you take the personal, global, and cosmic perspective. And these, again, are all ways to think about it. You're still you're, you're remaining in the thinking and cognitive part of the brain, not yet touching the emotional part, although I think these questions will touch the emotions. Well, that's actually the point, Alexandria. Once you start doing the cognitive work and you basically restructure in your mind who this person is, we notice that people begin to develop empathy toward the other where they can now be strong enough to step inside the other's shoes and to feel that person's own frustrations, their own struggles, who they are as a human being, and your connectedness with that other person beyond this uh, injustice that has really hurt your heart. And then after empathy comes what we call compassion, which is a willingness to suffer along with the other, where you see that, oh, you know, this person really has messed up their own life. They've messed up their marriage. They're kind, they've kind of thrown it away right now. and We're trying to glue it back together. And what has happened in their childhood? Look at some of the failures this person has been through. Look at the wounds this person has carried. And that tends to soften the heart. And here's what's so important about that. As the heart begins to soften, the stony, cold resentment begins to break up. It begins to weaken. It begins to reduce. And once the resentment starts to reduce and the forgiver gets stronger, we then ask them for the next part of the work phase, which we call bearing the pain. And that's not my idea. That comes to us from two scholars to whom I'm indebted. One is Morton Kaufman, who is a mental health professional in Israel. Yes. And, uh, and the second one is Alan Bergen, who's also a very famous psychotherapist. And both of them say that in any family, someone at some point is going to have to bear the pain of what has happened in that family so they don't keep passing the pain on to others. And as you stand up to the pain, you become a conduit of good. That's Alan Bergen's idea. Okay? That is an incredible and, so and timeless idea. Dr. Enright, can we talk about, before you tell us the fourth one, Sure. I think that the concept of bearing the pain is an incredible one, and I don't want to let that go, because okay, I'm thinking about, yeah, I'm thinking about all of the families who pass things on intergener intergenerationally that, um, like anger, the way that you're talking about. And someone needs to stop, but to stop it is painful. So can you just elaborate more on that? Yes. Most people 
angers or unhealthy angers or resentment can live on in other people's bodies after the one who initiated this anger has passed on. But once they realize that, it's a wake-up call that they don't want to leave to the next generations, not just the next generation, it could be the next ten generations, right. the unhealthiness of one's own life. And that's when a person gets to a crossroads with the question when they bear the pain, why are you doing this? Are you doing this only for yourself, only for the one who hurt you, or for your family? Way down the time road, the people whom you will never even meet, and they realize that they're actually giving a gift to future generations of their own family, you see. And so rather than leaving a legacy of anger and discontent, they realize they actually could leave a legacy of empathy and love. And their love could actually be in the hearts of their grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren. And so they are leaving something much better than money or a good rocking chair. They are leaving a love that could be passed on instead of a toxic anger being passed on. It's an incredible idea and but the idea of bearing the pain i suppose would be um as simple as when i work with couples and i encourage them to accept what's called a repair attempt if they're in the middle of a fight it would feel like more of a release to just yell back but instead they accept it and they stop, but that can cause physical pain in their body at the time of accepting it and breaking out of that negative cycle. Yes. See, you, we have to realize that there's going to be pain either way. I oftentimes use a physical analogy. Let's say someone is a runner and hurts their knee. They've torn cartilage in their knee. Now they're in pain. And they could simply live with that pain the rest of their life, in which case the need will continue to degenerate. Or they can accept the pain of surgery and rehabilitation. It's painful, but the first pain could last for many years. The second one is going to be lasting for months. Which would you rather? The permanent pain of the cartilage damage or the temporary pain of surgery and rehabilitation. Forgiveness is painful. Think of it as surgery for the heart. It is rehabilitation of the heart. And there's going to be pain either way. Which do you choose? Great way to say it. Right. Um, okay. So I did interrupt you. You wanted to share with listeners the last part of the work phase. Once the third part of the work phase, which is bearing the pain, has been understood and tried and a person is comfortable with it as a pattern of life, not just because of what happened with this one incident, but it becomes part of who you are, the person usually is strong enough for the fourth unit of this work phase, which is to consider now truly exercising forgiveness as a moral virtue, which is the giving of something to others. And forgiveness is the heroic moral virtue of giving to those who have been given to you, 
given to those who have broken your heart. And it sounds paradoxical. It sounds stupid. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. And I agree because most people only look at this idea of giving a gift through the lens of justice. It's not fair to give someone a gift when they hurt me. It doesn't make any sense to do this. I've asked for fidelity and I've gotten infidelity. Now why should I give a gift? Because you're not in the realm of justice anymore. You're in the realm of mercy. And justice and mercy grow up together. You can ask mm. fairness of the person. You can ask them to be faithful and to apologize and to make things right. And at the same time, when you forgive, you can have mercy on that person. And that, again, could mean let's sit down and talk and do so civilly and with kindness. Uh, you could return a phone call that you haven't been returning for weeks or an email. You could talk kindly about the person. There are many, many ways. If a person is deceased, you can make a donation to uh, a charitable foundation that they might like. So you're doing that in their name. That's giving a gift posthumously, as the woman did at the cemetery with her father's grandchildren. Right. So the gift is always quite creative, and it's always idiosyncratic to the situation and what you're ready to do what you can do within reason. But this apparently outrageous gift-giving is a paradox filled with mercy. And so the par one paradox is giving to those who don't give to you. But the most important paradox of this is as you give to the other, you are the one who's healed. As you mm. exercise mercy, psychological health comes your way and we have many research studies to show that's true about the link between mercy and psychological health that's right as you start giving this gift to the other having borne the pain having practiced empathy and compassion having gone through the thinking exercises of the personal global and cosmic perspective that as you give this gift of whatever you decide when you're ready with no force from others, that paradoxically leads to your own healing. As you reach out beyond yourself to another who, in terms of justice, doesn't necessarily deserve it, but you're giving it through the exercise of mercy, you get psychological benefits that you didn't even expect. Wow. I'm, I'm taking that in. Our research never ceases to surprise me, Alexandra. It's be beautiful. It's really, it's when beautiful. When people healed, it's, I'm still amazed. They've been at it for over 30 years. Yeah. The last phase is the deepening phase. What does that mean? The, in... the deepening, sometimes we call it the discovery phase, is learning more about yourself, learning more about life, having gone through forgiving. And one of the big lessons learned is that your suffering has changed you for the better. And so people now get a whole different view of suffering where they find meaning in their suffering. 
Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here where people think, oh, I should go look for suffering because it's good for me. No, no. Suffering in, invariably is going to come to us all in this difficult world. And when it does, can you grow from it? Can you learn from it? And my teacher on finding meaning in suffering, not literal teacher, I never had the honor to sit down with him, mm-hmm. was Victor Frankl, F-R-A-N-K-L, oh, yeah. who survived the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II. And he said he found two people in Auschwitz, two kinds of people. One who found meaning in their suffering, such as, the Nazis will not defeat me. I am going to hang on, and here was one of his own meanings. I'm going to hang on so that I can find my wife again and give her love. And that meaning of I will survive to give her love kept him alive. And he said those who found meaning in their life in Auschwitz lived. Those who found no meaning in what they were going through died. Hmm. And so it was literally a matter of life and death of finding meaning. So we encourage people to ponder how their experience has strengthened them as a person, might have strengthened their family, and gotten them ready to move through life well. And so that's a big part of it. And another one is, and this one surprised us actually in our early research. Yes. Many people who go through the forgiveness process actually find a new purpose in life. They begin to, and I'm not talking necessarily professionally, but many who go through the forgiveness process having been terribly wounded by others want to be healers of other people. They want to sit with people who are wounded, talk with them. They want to be conduits of good for those Mm -hmm. who are suffering and weeping. And they want to bind up the wounds of the world. And that gives them a great purpose in life which again can be a very health-producing way to thrive in this world. And one incest survivor said to me, uh, I used to consider myself a victim. Then I went from that to being a survivor, and now I'm a thriver. I am Mm -hmm. someone who thrives in life, and not that I would ever look for this kind of awful injustice, but I am now thriving because I have stood against it. And now I'm helping others stand against it. Yes, I have seen that so many times in my practice. Isn't that interesting? And that wasn't on my radar when we started this. Uh, And we put it on the radar because people kept talking about it. Oh, yes, I've definitely seen that in my practice that, and I try to explain that to people that this pain, this suffering can make you more able to help others in the future because you, you felt what this is like and your brokenness is a gift. I think that's extremely well put. That's exactly right. And it sometimes takes people a little time to see that. But once they experience it, they get it, and it's a lifelong lesson. And now they have something to look forward to, where life isn't just accumulating more money or whatever. Right. It's actually doing something about the wounds of the world. There was another piece in the deepening phase that I remember, and it was a recognition that you yourself needed forgiveness. So someone who was 
offended recognizes that they have made mistakes and they've needed forgiveness. That's right. In other words, once you go through this process and you forgive and you realize all the pain the other caused you, people tend to then ask the question, oh, you know, I've done this or that. Does the person I did that to have the kind of pain that I wasn't even aware that's in their heart? And so because you get more attuned to pain, you get attuned to the pain in the heart of those where you have been imperfect, have had a bad day or a bad month or whatever. And so there's a tendency then to want to seek forgiveness from those you have offended. So now the forgiving has sparked in the person a motivation for that other side of forgiveness, which is seeking forgiveness from others for what this person has done in their imperfections, which also, by the way, could include self-forgiveness. Oh, talk about that. We go to them and we seek forgiveness and receive an apology. We still might have to engage in the forgiving process now toward the self. Not because of what happened necessarily originally that sparked my forgiving, but now in the context of those I have offended. Wow. And that brings us back to the original case, because part of the reason the wife was going to leave him was because she could not forgive herself for her multiple affairs. But you know, she might not be able to forgive herself because she doesn't know the pathway. See, I talked about my frustration at the beginning of this talk, that people aren't well-versed, well-educated into what forgiveness is and how you go about it. If she could find the process of forgiveness, of self-forgiveness, which we actually have as a chapter in one of my books called The Eight, it's a numeral eight. The new one? Eight to forgiveness. Yeah, my new one. It's It's 2015, Eight Keys to Forgiveness. There's a whole chapter there guiding people through the self-forgiveness process. And it's very similar to the other process of forgiving. There's an uncovering phase where you see the effects of hurting others are hurtful to you. You then decide to self-forgive, which is to do no harm to yourself, to know you're going to exercise the moral virtue of mercy towards yourself. Hmm. Then seeing yourself with a personal, global, and cosmic perspective, having gentleness with yourself, not because of what you did, but because you're trying and you are imperfect, but you're not evil, and then stand in the pain so you don't self-subvert or subvert others because of the pain you caused yourself, Mm -hmm. and then you give yourself a kindness and understanding, more healthful behaviors like exercise and better nutrition, and then the paradox kicks in where you begin to be healed of the excessive guilt that is unnecessary in your life and could hurt you. So I'm glad that listeners can find the details about this in your book. The Eight eight Keys, what was it called? The Eight Keys to Forgiveness. Yes. And you can find it on Amazon. On Amazon. And you also wrote a children's book. Yes, it's called... Rising Above the Storm Clouds, and I'm very committed to forgiveness education because I don't want the children of this time period to grow up and face 
let's say, for example, infidelity when they're 35. Right. And have never thought about forgiveness, and now they have to stumble through it when they have a job and a spouse and maybe children and the pressures of life. Now they've added the new pressure of how do I go about doing this? I want to equip children with the knowledge of forgiveness so that when the storms of adult life come, they are ready for this. You see, if education is to prepare us for adulthood, right. why do we not prepare children now for the injustices of adulthood that invariably will beat them and get them ready and using forgiveness as a survival tool. What's more important, balancing your checkbook by knowing mathematics or surviving the infidelity that could tear apart your family and could tear apart your own heart? What's more important? I am going to find that book for my four children. Ah, there you go. Yeah. I don't know what age group your book is aimed at. Well, it's it can be anywhere in the primary grades up to probably fifth grade, I would say sixth grade even. I'd love to interview you again about some of the global work you've done because when you were talking about um, unforgiveness across war-torn countries, across generations, and that you have worked in a lot of countries. I wonder what it is that you're doing. And I admire you for your hope in putting a stake in the ground in this area. Yeah, that's well put. It is a stake in the ground. And it needs to be there because people are at risk and relationships are at risk, families are at risk, communities are at risk, and nations are at risk because the United Nations tells me that when there is war, about 10 years later, even if they sign peace accords, yes. about a decade later, conflict reemerges. And if that's not in inevitable, but it, it is typical. And the question is, how can you put a lid on the smoldering anger that festers and grows and then spills over again so that the 10-year anniversary doesn't come. <laughs> Say, how, how does one do that? Part of it surely is negotiation and fairness and justice, but another part is to heal the heart. And the peace movement has not really caught on deeply to that yet. If they fix the water supply that's been damaged and they fix the roads that have been bombed, Oftentimes, people say that's sufficient. Well, that's sufficient for the infrastructure, but what about the human heart? How do we repair that? And that has yet to make its way into the peace movement. It is vitally necessary. It is a next step for peace in the world. It's really time for people to understand that. I hope you'll come back to the show and talk about that with me. I would love to do that. <laughs> no problem at all. You're about to take an around-the-world trip again? Yes, and it's interesting that you said the, world, the word again, because I do this now frequently, about twice a year. Next week, I fly over the Pacific from Los Angeles to the Philippines, where there's a big interest in forgiveness education, then into Israel and the West Bank, where forgiveness education is being planted, then over to Slovakia, 
where I'm addressing physicians on forgiving within the context of blood cancers because mm. these physicians think that forgiveness can bolster the immune system and help them fight the disease. Mm. Then on to Belfast, Northern Ireland, where I've been working on forgiveness education with schools for 17 years, mm. then across the Atlantic Ocean, back to Madison, Wisconsin, around the world from west to east. And you are in Madison right now. In Madison now, finishing up the semester at the university, then I pack my bag. <laughs> now, I, I want listeners to have the opportunity to support your work. How can they do that? Is there a website? We have a website, internationalforgiveness.com. And there's a, I set that up as a service to people in the early 1990s before I wrote any of the books. And it's survived for a quarter of a century where we put on a lot of information about forgiveness that I hope people would find helpful to them. I was talking about people giving you donations, Dr. Enrich. Oh. Is there an opportunity? Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. They can do that at the International Forgiveness Institute site, internationalforgiveness.com, if they think we're worthy of it. I am so grateful. I'm grateful for your service to this world, and I'm grateful that you came on this podcast and shared your ideas with the listeners, Dr. Enright. I'm very glad you asked me, Alexandra. If you enjoyed this episode of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, show your support by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. If you'd like to share your comments or ideas about this podcast, follow us on Facebook under Alexandra Miller. Lastly, Dr. Alexandra has written an inspiring children's book entitled There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, which is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giasulo. There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, teaches children about finding joy and gratitude, even when things don't go exactly as planned, and can be found at psychologyamerica.com or amazon.com.